Chapter 4 Idolatry to be destroyed at Christ's coming. The idols he shall utterly abolish. Isaiah 2 18. To all who interpret the prophecy of Isaiah literally, the time spoken of here in Isaiah will be plain. It is the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the day when he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. Isaiah 2.21. The event is part of the powerful purification which will then take place in his professing church, the abolishing of all idols. From this text we will consider the subject of idolatry. Let us look at four questions relating to idolatry. 1. What is it? What is the definition of idolatry? 2. Where does it come from? What is the cause of idolatry? 3. Where is it? What form does it take in the visible church of Christ? And 4. What will end it? What will be the ultimate abolition of idolatry? This subject of idolatry is a complicated one. We live in an age when truth is constantly in danger of being sacrificed to toleration, charity, and so-called peace. Nevertheless, I cannot forget that I am a minister of a church that has spoken plainly on the subject of idolatry, and, unless I am greatly mistaken, truth about idolatry is in the highest sense truth for the times. What is it? Let me first give you the definition of idolatry. It is of the utmost importance that you know what it is. Unless I make this clear, I can do nothing with the text. Vagueness and ambiguity prevail on this point as on almost every other topic in religion. To keep from running aground on their spiritual voyage, Christians must have their pathways well marked and their minds filled with clear definitions. My definition of idolatry is a worship in which the honor due to the Lord and to Him only is given to some of His creatures or some invention of His creatures. It may vary to a great extent. It may assume exceedingly different forms according to the ignorance or the knowledge or the civilization of those who offer it. It may be grossly absurd and ludicrous, or it may border closely on truth and be erroneously defended. But whether in the adoration of the idol of Juggernaut or in the adoration of the host in St. Peter's at Rome, the idolatrous principle is the same. In either case, the honor due to God is turned from Him and given to that which is not God. And whenever this is done, whether in heathen temples or in professedly Christian churches, this is idolatry. You must bear in mind that it is not necessary for a man to formally deny God and Christ in order to be an idolater. Far from it. Professed reverence for the God of the Bible and actual idolatry are perfectly compatible. They have often gone side by side, and they still do so. The children of Israel never thought of renouncing God when they persuaded Aaron to make the golden calf. These be thy gods, thy Elohim, they said, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And the feast in honor of the calf was kept as a feast to the Lord, Jehovah. Exodus 32, 4-5. Jeroboam never pretended to ask the ten tribes to cast off their allegiance to the God of David and Solomon. When he set up the calves of gold in Dan and Bethel, he only said, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, thy Elohim. 
O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. 1 Kings 12.28. In both instances, you will observe that the idol was not set up as a rival to God, but under the pretense of being a help, a stepping stone to his service. But in both instances, a great sin was committed. The honor due to God was given to a visible representation of him. The majesty of Jehovah was offended. The second commandment was broken. There was, in the eyes of God, a flagrant act of idolatry. Recognize this, and dismiss from your minds those loose and careless ideas about idolatry which are common today. Don't think that there are only two sorts of idolatry, the spiritual idolatry of people who love their spouse or child or money more than God, and the open, shameless idolatry of those who bow down to an image of wood, metal, or stone because they know no better. You can be sure that idolatry is a sin that occupies a far, far wider field than this. It's not merely a thing in India that you hear of and pity at missionary meetings, nor is it just a thing confined to your own heart that you can confess on your knees before the mercy seat. It is a pestilence that walks in the church of Christ to a much greater extent than many of you suppose. It is an evil that, like the man of sin, sitteth in the temple of God. 2 Thessalonians 2, 4. It is a sin that we all need to watch and pray against continually. It creeps stealthily into our religious worship, and is upon us before we are even aware. Isaiah spoke these words not to the worshipper of Baal, but to the formal Jew who actually came to the temple. He that killeth an ox is as if he slew a man. He that sacrificeth a lamb as if he cut off a dog's neck. He that offereth an oblation as if he offered swine's blood. He that burneth incense as if he blessed an idol. Isaiah 66, 3. Remember, God has specially denounced this sin of idolatry in His Word. One commandment out of ten is devoted to the prohibition of it. None of all the ten contains such a solemn declaration of His character and of His judgment against the disobedient. I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Exodus 20, 5. This commandment is emphatically repeated and amplified, especially in the fourth chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. This is the sin that has brought down the heaviest judgments on the visible church. It brought on Israel the armies of Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon. It scattered the ten tribes, burned up Jerusalem, and carried Judah and Benjamin into captivity. Later, it brought on the eastern churches the overwhelming flood of the Saracenic invasion and turned many a spiritual garden into a wilderness. The desolation which reigns where Cyprian and Augustine once preached, and the living death in which the churches of Asia Minor and Syria are buried, are all attributable to this sin. All testify to the same great truth that the Lord proclaims in Isaiah, My glory will I not give to another. Isaiah 42, 8. Gather these things in your mind. Be very sure that every church of Christ that desires to stay pure needs to thoroughly examine, know, and understand the subject of idolatry. Where does it come from? 
Now let us discuss the cause of idolatry. Where does it come from? To the person who takes an exalted view of human intellect and reason, idolatry may seem absurd. He imagines it to be too irrational to be a danger to any but those with slow and weak minds. To someone who thinks only superficially about Christianity, the peril of idolatry may seem very small. This person will tell you that while professing Christians may break some of the commandments, the second commandment is not very likely to be one of them. Now these people show a woeful ignorance of human nature. They do not see that there are secret roots of idolatry in all of us. The prevalence of idolatry in all ages among the heathen inevitably puzzles the one, and the warnings of Protestant ministers against idolatry in the church appear uncalled for to the other, since both are blind to its cause. The cause of all idolatry is the natural corruption of man's heart. That great family disease with which all the children of Adam are born shows itself in this, as it does in a thousand other ways. Out of the same fountain from which proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, and the like, Mark 7.21-22, out of that same fountain flow false views of God and false views of the worship due Him. Therefore, when the Apostle Paul lists for the Galatians the works of the flesh, he places idolatry prominently among them. Galatians 5.20 All people will have a religion of some kind. God has not left Himself without a witness in us all, fallen as we are. Like old inscriptions hidden under mounds of rubbish, like the almost obliterated underwriting of palimpsest manuscripts, There is a dim something engraved at the bottom of our hearts, however faint and half erased, a something which makes us feel we must have a religion and a worship of some kind. The proof of this is to be found in the history of voyages and travels in every part of the globe. The exceptions to the rule are so few, if indeed there are any, that they only confirm its truth. It may be in some dark corners of the earth that the worship rises no higher than a vague fear of an evil spirit and a desire to win his favor, but a worship of some kind we will have. But then the effects of the fall come into play. Ignorance of God, carnal and low regard of his nature and attributes, earthly and physical notions of the service which is acceptable to him, all characterize the religion of natural man. There is a craving in our minds for something we can see and feel and touch in His divinity. We would gladly bring our God down to our own crawling levels. We would make our religion a thing of sense and sight. In our natural state, we have no idea of faith and spirit. Just as we, until renewed by grace, are willing to live a fallen and degraded life on God's earth, so, until we are renewed by the Holy Spirit, we have no objection to worship in the same fallen way. Idolatry is a natural product of man's heart. It is a weed which, like the earth uncultivated, the heart is always ready to bring out. Does it surprise you when you read of the constantly recurring idolatries of the Old Testament church, of Peor and Baal and Moloch and Shemos and Ashtoreth, and of high places and hill altars, 
and groves and images, and this in the full light of the Mosaic law? Don't be surprised. It can be accounted for. There is a cause. Does it surprise you when you read in history of idolatry creeping by degrees into the church of Christ, how little by little it thrust out the gospel truth, until in Canterbury men offered more at the shrine of Thomas Becket than they did at that of the Virgin Mary, and more at that of the Virgin Mary than at that of Christ? Don't be surprised. It is all intelligible. There is a cause. Does it surprise you when you hear of people today going over from Protestant churches to the Church of Rome? Do you find it inexplicable and feel that you could never trade a pure form of worship for one like that of the Pope's? Don't be surprised. There is a solution. There is a cause. And that cause is the deep corruption of man's heart. There is a natural inclination and tendency in us all to give God a physical, carnal worship and not that which is commanded in His Word. We are ever ready to create for our sloth and unbelief visible helps and stepping-stones in our approach to Him, and ultimately to give these inventions of our own the honor due Him. In fact, idolatry is all natural, downhill, and easy, like the broad way. Spiritual worship is all of grace, all uphill, and all against the grain. Any other kind of worship is more pleasing to the natural heart than worshipping God in the way our Lord Christ describes, in spirit and in truth, John 4.23. I am not surprised at the quantity of idolatry existing both in the world and in the visible church. I believe it is perfectly possible that we may live to see even more of it than some have ever dreamed of. It wouldn't surprise me if some powerful personal antichrist were to arise before the end, mighty in intellect, mighty in talents for government, and perhaps mighty in miraculous gifts, too. It wouldn't surprise me to see such a person setting himself up in opposition to Christ and making an infidel combination against the gospel. I believe that many who now glory in saying, We will not have this Christ to reign over us, would rejoice to give him honor. I believe that many would make a god of him and revere him as an incarnation of truth and concentrate their idea of hero-worship on him. I suggest it as a possibility, and no more. But I am certain of this. No man is in more danger of idolatry than the man who now sneers at every form of religion, and that from unbelief to belief and from atheism to the most blatant idolatry there is but a single step. Don't think that idolatry is an old-fashioned sin into which you are never likely to fall. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10.12 Look into your own hearts. The seeds of idolatry are all there. Where is it? What forms has idolatry assumed in the visible church? Where is it? Many believe that the promises of perpetuity, lasting forever, and the preservation from apostasy belong to the visible church of Christ. I believe there never was a more baseless idea than this theory. It is supported neither by Scripture nor by facts. The church against which the gates of hell will never prevail is not the visible church, but the whole body of the elect, 
the company of true believers out of every nation and people. The greater part of the visible church has frequently maintained glaring heresies. The particular branches of it are never secure against deadly error, both of faith and practice. A departure from the faith, a falling away, a leaving of the first love in any branch of the visible church should never surprise a careful reader of the New Testament. That idolatry would arise seems to have been the expectation of the apostles even before the canon of the New Testament was closed. It is remarkable to observe how Paul dwells on this subject in his epistle to the Corinthians. The members of the church in Corinth were not even to eat with one who claimed to be a brother but was an idolater. 1 Corinthians 5.11 Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them. 1 Corinthians 10.7 He says again, My dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. 1 Corinthians 10.14 When he writes to the Colossians, he warns them against the worshipping of angels. Colossians 2.18 and John closes his first epistle with the solemn warning, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. 1 John 5.21 It's impossible not to feel that all these passages imply an expectation that idolatry would emerge among professing Christians and that it would happen soon. The famous prophecy in the fourth chapter of the first epistle to Timothy contains a passage which is even more directly to the point. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. 1 Timothy 4, 1 I won't make a lengthy discussion of that remarkable expression, doctrines of devils. It will be sufficient to say that our excellent translators for once missed the full meaning of the apostle in their translation of the words stated in our version as devils. The true meaning of the expression is doctrines about departed spirits. In this view, which is maintained by those most qualified to speak on the subject, the passage becomes a direct prediction of the rise of that most deceptive form of idolatry, the worship of dead saints. The last passage I will call your attention to is the conclusion of the ninth chapter of Revelation, verse 20. The rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils. This is the same word as that just quoted in the epistle to Timothy, and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone, and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. I am not going to offer any comment on the chapter in which this verse occurs. I know very well there is a difference of opinion as to the true interpretation of the plagues predicted in it. One thing I dare to argue is that there is the highest probability these plagues are to fall on the visible church of Christ, and the highest improbability that John was prophesying about the heathen who never heard the gospel. If you concede this, the fact that idolatry is a predicted sin of the visible church does seem most conclusively and continually established. And now, if we turn from the Bible to things that are known, what do we see? Unhesitatingly, I reply that there is unmistakable proof that Scripture warnings and predictions were not spoken without cause, and that idolatry has emerged in the visible church of Christ 
and still exists. You will find a good summary of the rise and progress of evil in former days in the admirable homily of our own church against peril of idolatry. I refer you to that homily and remind you once for all that in the judgment of your own thirty-nine articles, the Book of Homilies contains a godly and wholesome doctrine and necessary for these times. There you will read how, even in the fourth century, Jerome complains that the errors of images have come in and passed to the Christians from the Gentiles. And Eusebius says, We do see now that images of Peter and Paul and of our Saviour Himself be made, and tables be painted, which I think to have been derived and kept indifferently by an heathenish custom. There you will also read that in the fifth century, Pontius Paulinus, bishop of Nola, caused the walls of the temples to be painted with stories taken out of the Old Testament, that the people beholding and considering these pictures might the better abstain from too much surfeiting and riot, but from learning by painted stories it came by little and little to idolatry. There you will read that in the beginning of the seventh century, Pope Gregory I, Bishop of Rome, did allow images in churches, and that in the eighth century, Irene, mother of Constantine VI, assembled a council at Nicaea, and was able to obtain a decree that images should be put up in all the churches of Greece, and that honor and worship should be given to the said images. And there you will read how the homily concludes its historical summary, that laity and clergy, learned and unlearned, all ages, sorts, and degrees of men, women, and children of whole Christendom have been at once drowned in abominable idolatry, of all other vices most detested of God, and most damnable to man, and that by the space of eight hundred years and more. This is a sorrowful account, but it is only too true. There can be little doubt that the evil began even before the time mentioned by the homily writers. No one who calmly considers the excessive reverence which the early church paid from the very first to the visible parts of religion should be surprised by the vice of idolatry in the primitive church. I believe that no one can impartially read the language used by nearly all the church fathers about the church, the bishops, the ministry, baptism, the Lord's Supper, the martyrs, the dead saints generally, without being struck with the wide difference between their language and the language of Scripture on these subjects. You seem at once to be in a new atmosphere. You feel that you are no longer treading on holy ground. You find things which in the Bible are evidently of second-rate importance, but are here made to be of first-rate importance. You find the things of sense and sight exalted to a position in which Paul and Peter and James and John, speaking by the Holy Spirit, never for a moment place them. It is not merely the weakness of uninspired writings, it is also something worse. It is a new system. And what is the explanation of all this? It is that you are in a region where the malaria of idolatry began to rise. You perceive the first workings of the mystery of iniquity. You detect the buds of that huge system of idolatry which, as the homily describes, was afterwards formally acknowledged and ultimately blossomed so profusely in every part of Christendom. But let us now turn from the past to the present. 
Let us examine the question that most concerns us. In what form does idolatry present itself to us as a sin of the visible church of Christ in our own time? I can easily answer this question. I feel no hesitation in affirming that idolatry assumes its most glaring form in the church of Rome at this very day. This is a subject on which it is hard to speak because of the times we live in. But the whole truth ought to be spoken by ministers of Christ without respect to times or prejudices. After preaching on idolatry, I could not lie down in peace if I didn't declare my conviction that idolatry is one of the crying sins of the Church of Rome. I say this in all sadness. I say it acknowledging fully that we have our faults in our own church, and practically, in some quarters, our own idolatry. But I believe we are free from formal, recognized, and systematic idolatry, while, as for the Church of Rome, if there is not an enormous quantity of systematic, organized idolatry in her worship, I frankly confess I do not know what idolatry is. To my mind, it is idolatry to have images and pictures of saints in churches and to give them a reverence for which there is no warrant or precedent in Scripture. If this be so, I say there is idolatry in the Church of Rome. To my mind, it is idolatry to invoke the Virgin Mary and the saints in glory, and to address them in language never used in Scripture except to the Lord. And if this be so, I say there is idolatry in the Church of Rome. To my mind, it is idolatry to bow down to mere material things and attribute to them a power and sanctity far exceeding that attached to the ark or altar of the Old Testament, and a power and sanctity, too, for which there is not a hint of foundation in the Word of God. And if this be so, with the holy coat of Trevis and the amazingly multiplied wood of the true cross and a thousand other so called relics, I say there is idolatry in the Church of Rome. To my mind, it is idolatry to worship that which man's hands have made, to call it God and adore it when lifted up before our eyes. And if this be so, with the doctrine of transubstantiation and the elevation of the host in my mind, I say there is idolatry in the Church of Rome. To my mind, it is idolatry to make ordained men mediators between ourselves and God, robbing, as it were, our Lord Christ of His office, and giving them an honor which even apostles and angels in Scripture flatly refused. And if this be so, with the honor paid to popes and priests before my eyes, I say there is idolatry in the Church of Rome. I know that language like this jolts the minds of many. Some love to shut their eyes against evil which is unpleasant to acknowledge. They won't see things which involve unpleasant consequences. That the Church of Rome is an erring church, they will acknowledge. That she is idolatrous, they will deny. They tell us that the reverence that the Catholic Church gives to saints and images does not amount to idolatry. They inform us that there are distinctions between latria and dulia between a mediation of redemption and a mediation of intercession, which clear her of the charge. My reply is that the Bible knows nothing of such distinctions, and that in the actual practice of the majority of Roman Catholics they have no existence at all.
They tell us that it is a mistake to say that Roman Catholics really worship the images and pictures before which they perform acts of adoration. They say that they only use them as helps to devotion, and in reality look far beyond them. My answer is that many heathens could say just as much for their idolatry. It is well known that in former days they did say so, and that in India many idol worshippers do say so in the present day. But the apology does not help. The terms of the second commandment are too stringent. It prohibits bowing down as well as worshipping, and the very anxiety which the Church of Rome has often displayed to exclude that second commandment from her catechisms is of itself a great fact which speaks volumes to a candid observer. They tell us that we have no evidence for our assertions, that we base our charges on the abuses which prevail among the ignorant members of the church community, and that it is absurd to say that a church containing so many wise and learned men is guilty of idolatry. My answer is that the devotional books in common use among Roman Catholics supply us with unmistakable evidence. If you doubt my assertion, examine that notorious book, The Garden of the Soul, and read the language there addressed to the Virgin Mary. Remember that this language is addressed to a woman who, though highly favored and the mother of our Lord, was yet a fellow sinner and actually confesses her need of a Savior for herself. She says, My spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. Luke 1 47. Examine this language in the light of the New Testament, and then tell us fairly if the charge of idolatry is not fully made. But, in addition, what is done in the city of Rome itself supplies the best evidence. What do men and women do under the light of the Pope's own presence? What is the religion that prevails around St. Peter's and within the walls of the Vatican? What is Roman Catholicism in Rome, unfettered, unshackled, and free to develop itself in full perfection? Honestly, answer these questions, and I will not ask any more. Read a book such as Seymour's A Pilgrimage to Rome, or Alford's Letters from Abroad, and ask any visitor to Rome if the picture is too highly colored. Do this, I say, and I believe you cannot avoid the conclusion that Roman Catholicism in perfection is a gigantic system of Mary worship, saint worship, image worship, relic worship, and priest worship, that, briefly, it is a huge organized idolatry. I don't know how these things sound to your ears. I gain no pleasure thinking about the shortcomings of any who profess to be and call themselves Christians. I can truly say that I have said what I have said with pain and sorrow. I draw a wide distinction between the Church of Rome and the private opinions of many of her members. I believe and hope that many Roman Catholics are in their heart inconsistent with what they profess and are better than the Church to which they belong. I cannot forget the Jansenists and Pasquier Quenznell and Martin Booz. I believe that many a poor Italian today is worshipping with an idolatrous worship simply because he doesn't know any better. He has no Bible to instruct him. He has no faithful minister to teach him. 
He has the fear of the priest before his eyes if he dares to think for himself. He has no money to enable him to get away from the bondage he lives under, even if he feels a desire to do so. I remember all this and say that the Italians very much deserve our sympathy and compassion. But all this must not prevent my saying that the Church of Rome is an idolatrous church. If I said less, I would not be faithful. The church of which I am a minister has spoken out most strongly on the subject. The homily on peril of idolatry and the words we declare following the rubrics at the end of our communion service denouncing the adoration of the sacramental bread and wine as idolatry to be abhorred of all faithful Christians are plain evidence that I have told you just what my own church teaches. Today, when some are disposed to break away and join the Church of Rome, and many are shutting their eyes to her real character and wanting us to be reunited to her, in a day like this my own conscience would rebuke me if I did not warn men plainly that the Church of Rome is an idolatrous church, and that if they will join her they are joining themselves to idols. I won't spend any more time on this subject. The main point I want you to see is that idolatry has decidedly demonstrated itself in the visible church of Christ, and nowhere so decidedly as in the church of Rome. What will end it? The last thing I will address is the ultimate abolition of all idolatry. What will end it? It is an unhealthy soul that doesn't long for a time when idolatry will be no more. That heart cannot be right with God that can think of the millions who are sunk in heathenism or honor the false prophet Muhammad or daily invoke the Virgin Mary and not cry, O my God, what will be the end of these things? How long, O Lord, how long? Here, as in other subjects, the sure word of prophecy comes to our aid. The end of all idolatry will one day come. Its doom is fixed. Its overthrow is certain. Whether in heathen temples or in so called Christian churches, idolatry will be destroyed at the second coming of our Lord Christ. Then the prophecy of our text will be fulfilled the idols he shall utterly abolish. The prophecies of Micah, Zephaniah, and Zechariah will be realized. Thy graven images also will I cut off and thy standing images out of the midst of thee, and thou shalt no more worship the work of thine hands. Micah 5.13 The Lord will be terrible unto them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and men shall worship him, every one from his place, even all the isles of the heathen. Zephaniah 2.11 It shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. Zechariah 13, 2. Psalm 97 will at that time be fully and completely accomplished. The Lord reigneth, let the earth rejoice, let the multitude of isles be glad thereof. Clouds and darkness are round about Him. Righteousness and judgment are the habitation of His throne. A fire goeth before him, and burneth up his enemies round about. His lightnings enlightened the world, the earth saw and trembled. The hills melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, 
at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare His righteousness, and all the people see His glory. Confounded be all they that serve graven images, that boast themselves of idols. Worship Him, all ye gods. The coming and kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ is the blessed hope which should always comfort the children of God until He does return. It is the guiding light by which we must journey. It is the one point on which all our expectations should be concentrated. Scripture, Yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Hebrews 10.37 Our David will no longer dwell in Adullam, followed by a despised few and rejected by the many. He will take to himself his great power and reign and cause every knee to bow before him. Until then, our redemption is not perfectly enjoyed. As Paul tells the Ephesians, we are sealed unto the day of redemption. Ephesians 4.30 Our salvation is not completed. Peter says, We are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter 1.5 Our knowledge is still defective. Paul tells the Corinthians, Now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. 1 Corinthians 13.12 In short, our best things are yet to come. But in the day of our Lord's return, every desire will be satisfied. We will no more be pressed down and worn out with a sense of constant failure, feebleness, and disappointment. In His presence we will find a fullness of joy that we have never had anywhere else, and when we wake up in His likeness, we will be satisfied as we have never been before. There are many abominations within the visible church over which we can only sigh and cry, like the faithful in Ezekiel's day, Ezekiel 9.4. We cannot remove them, but a day is coming when Jesus will once more purify His temple and cast forth everything that defiles it. He will do the work of which the actions of Hezekiah and Josiah were a faint type long ago. He will cast down the image and purge out idolatry in every shape. Do you long for the conversion of the heathen world? You will not see it in its fullness until the Lord's appearing. Then, and not until then, will that often misapplied text be fulfilled, A man shall cast his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each one for himself to worship, to the moles and to the bats. Isaiah 2.20 Do you long for the redemption of Israel? You will never see it in its perfection until the Redeemer comes to Zion. Idolatry in the professing church of Christ has been one of the mightiest stumbling blocks in the way of Jewish conversion. When it begins to fall, the veil over the heart of Israel will begin to be taken away. Psalm 102.16 Do you long for the fall of Antichrist and the purification of the Church of Rome? I believe that will never be until this dispensation comes to an end. That vast system of idolatry may be depleted and weakened by the Spirit of the Lord's mouth, but it will never be destroyed except by the brightness of His coming. 2 Thessalonians 2, 8
Do you long for a perfect church, a church in which there will not be the slightest taint of idolatry? You must wait for the Lord's return. Then, and not until then, will we see a perfect church, a church having neither spot nor wrinkle nor any such thing. Ephesians 5.27 A church of which all the members will be regenerate, and every one a child of God. If these things are true, you will not wonder why we urge you to study prophecy, and that we charge you above all else to hold firmly to the glorious doctrine of Christ's second appearing and kingdom. This is the light shining in a dark place that you need to pay attention to. Let others indulge their imagination with an imaginary church of the future. Let the children of this world dream of some coming man who is to understand everything and set everything right. They are only bringing on themselves bitter disappointment. They will awake to find their visions baseless and empty as a dream. It is to people such as these that the prophet's words may be well applied. Behold all ye that kindle a fire, that compass yourselves about with sparks. Walk in the light of your fire, and in the sparks that ye have kindled. This shall ye have of mine hand, ye shall lie down in sorrow. Isaiah 50.11 But let your eyes look forward to the day of Christ's second advent. That is the only day when every abuse will be rectified, and every corruption and source of sorrow completely purged away. While waiting for that day, let us each work on and serve our generation. Don't be idle, as if nothing can be done to check evil. But neither be disheartened because we do not yet see all things put under our Lord. After all, the night is almost over, and the day is at hand. Let us wait, I say, on the Lord. And if these things are true, you will not wonder why we warn you to beware of all leanings toward the Church of Rome. Surely, when the mind of God about idolatry is so plainly revealed to us in His Word, it seems the height of foolish infatuation in anyone to join a church so steeped in idolatries as the Church of Rome. To enter into communion with her when God is saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues, Revelation 18, 4, to seek her when the Lord is warning us to leave her, to become her subjects when the Lord's voice is crying, Escape for thy life, flee from the wrath to come, is mental blindness. It is a blindness like that of him who, though forewarned, goes on board a sinking ship, a blindness that would be almost incredible if our own eyes did not see examples of it continually. We must all be on our guard. We must take nothing for granted. We mustn't hastily suppose that we are too wise to be ensnared, and say like Hazael, Is thy servant a dog, that he should do this great thing? 2 Kings 8.13 We who preach must cry aloud and not allow a false tenderness to make us keep silent about the heresies of the day. You who hear must be ready with the truth, and store in your minds clear prophetic views of the end to which all idol worshippers must come. Let us all try to grasp the reality that the latter ends of the world are upon us, and that the abolition of all idolatry is hastening on. 
Is this the time for someone to move nearer to Rome? Is it not rather a time to pull further back and stand clear to avoid being caught in her downfall? Is this a time to excuse and disguise Rome's multiple corruptions and refuse to see the reality of her sins? Instead, we ought to especially guard against a Roman Catholic tendency in religion, be especially careful to not allow any treason against our Lord Christ, and be especially ready to protest against unscriptural worship of every description. Remember that the destruction of all idolatry is certain, and remembering that, beware the Church of Rome. Let me conclude by giving you some safeguards and protections for your souls. You live in a time when the Church of Rome is walking among us with renewed strength, and loudly boasting that she will soon win back the ground that she has lost. False doctrines of every kind are continually set before you in the most subtle and misleading forms, so it cannot be thought untimely if I offer you some practical safeguards against idolatry. What it is, where it comes from, where it is, what will end it, all this you have heard. Let me point out how you may keep safe from it, and I will say no more. Arm yourselves with a thorough knowledge of the Word of God. Read it more diligently than ever. Become familiar with every part of it. Let it dwell in you richly. Beware of anything which would make you give less time and less heart to the scrutiny of its sacred pages. The Bible is the sword of the Spirit. Let it never be laid aside. The Bible is the true lantern for a dark and cloudy time. Beware of traveling without its light. If we knew the secret history of those deplorable defections from our church to that of Rome, I strongly suspect that in almost every case one of the most important steps in the downward road would be a neglected Bible. More attention to forms, sacraments, daily services, early Christianity, and so forth, and diminished attention to the written Word of God. The Bible is the king's highway. Once you leave that for any other path, however beautiful and old and frequented it may seem, you should not be surprised if you end up worshipping images and relics. Arm yourselves with a godly jealousy about even the smallest part of the gospel. Don't approve even the slightest attempt to keep back any jot or tittle of it, or to throw any part of it into the shade by exalting subordinate matters in religion. It seemed a small thing when Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles, but Paul tells the Galatians, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. Galatians 2.11. Don't count anything little that concerns your soul. Be very particular about whom you listen to, where you go, and what you do in all the matters of your own particular worship. Do not care if you are accused of being squeamish or of having excessively high principles. You live in days when great principles are involved in little acts, and things in religion which years ago were utterly indifferent are now by circumstances rendered indifferent no longer. Be careful not to tamper with anything of a Romanizing tendency. It is foolish to play with fire. 
I believe that many who left our church for the Church of Rome began by thinking there was no great harm in attaching just a little more importance to certain outward things than they once did. But once launched on the downward course, they went on from one thing to another. They provoked God, and He left them to themselves. They tempted the devil, and He came to them. They started with trifles, as many foolishly call them, and they have ended with downright idolatry. And last of all, arm yourselves above all with clear, sound views of our Lord Jesus Christ and of the salvation that is in Him. He is the image of the invisible God, the express image of His person, and when truly known, He is the true preservative against all idolatry. Build yourselves deep down on the strong foundation of His finished work upon the cross. Settle this firmly in your mind. Christ Jesus has done everything needed in order to present you without spot before the throne of God, and that simple, childlike faith on your part is the only thing required to give you an entire interest in the work of Christ, and that having this faith, you are completely justified in the sight of God. You will not be more justified if you live to the age of Methuselah and do the works of the Apostle Paul, and you can add nothing to that complete justification by any acts, deeds, works, performances, fastings, prayers, arms, attendance on ordinances, or anything else of your own. And keep up, I beg you, continual communion with the person of the Lord Jesus. Abide in Him daily. Feed on Him daily. Look to Him daily. Lean on Him daily. Live upon Him daily. Draw from His fullness daily. Do this, and the idea of other mediators, other comforters, other intercessors will seem utterly absurd. What need is there? You will reply, I have Christ, and in Him I have all. Let the Lord Christ have His rightful place in your heart, and all other things in your religion will soon fall into their right places. Church, ministers, sacraments, ordinances, all will go down and take second place. Unless Christ sits as high priest and king upon the throne of your heart, that little kingdom within will be in perpetual confusion. But let him be all in all there, and I will have no fear for you. Before him every idol, every dagon, will fall.